This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you by the Ryan's Thompson Fund, Physicians for Social Responsibility, and listeners like you. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space Radio. Today is the second in our series on parenting kids on the autism spectrum. Last week, we spoke with Temple Grandin about the challenges of sensory sensitivities for kids with autism, especially to loud noise and touch. Today, I'll be talking with Dave Finch, the author of the best-selling book, The Journal of Best Practices, a memoir of marriage, Asperger syndrome, and one man's quest to be a better husband. Dave will be talking about some of the relational challenges for people on the autism spectrum. Dave Finch grew up on a farm in northern Illinois and studied music engineering technology. He was diagnosed with Asperger's, considered a mild form of autism, in 2008, after he was married and had children. He studied sketch comedy writing at Second City in Chicago and now works as a technical marketing manager as well as a writer, speaker, and humorist. Welcome to Safe Space Radio, Dave. Thank you. I want to start by asking you to kind of define some terms for us. What is Asperger's, and how do you know for sure that you have it? So Asperger's syndrome is uh, generally thought of as a mild form of autism, relatively mild form of autism. And it's kind of characterized by a few things, uh, most notably being difficulty processing social information, um, really understanding what to do in uh, social situations um, without learning those things by rote sometimes. Um, I think one of the, a few of the hallmarks, especially in my case, are things like uh, they can be persistent and intense preoccupations with certain topics, often to the exclusion of lots of other things around you. Um, you know, for example, like a fixation on a particular hobby, meanwhile ignoring everything else going on around you. Um, a lot of times people would refer to things like unusual mannerisms, um, repetitive behaviors, that sort of thing. Um, and uh, one of the things that I think is, is really key to mention also uh, when discussing it would be um, uh, sort of an unintentional um, focusing on the self, like a, an egocentricity, but it's not vanity. It's, it's truly egocentric, meaning what's going on in the world right now, you know, how does that relate to me? Um, but as for how I know I have it, it's kind of an interesting story. Um, my wife, uh, Kristen who at the time was a speech therapist a few years ago, um, was working with children with autism and saw some things very consistent between myself and, and uh, some of the children she was working with um, who had Asperger's syndrome. And, um, you know, started connecting the dots and realized one day that, wait a minute, I'm, I'm very similar to some of these kids. And so she sat me down and gave me a very informal evaluation that she had found online um, and this is nothing, it's not a diagnostic tool or anything like that. It's just, uh, it's just a fun little thing that you, you can take and it kind of tells you whether or not you're likely to receive this sort of diagnosis and, um, passed it with flying colors. So that's kind of how we stumbled into all this. So I was reading the story, you tell the story at the beginning of your book and it's just, it's just this wonderful story of how she kind of like lures you down to the basement with pizza and doesn't really tell you what she's going to do. And um, but the questions seem incredibly insightful and like really kind of getting inside your mind. And I was curious if you would tell me the name of that questionnaire, because people often want to know where she got it. I know it's 150 items on a questionnaire. Can other people take it and where can they find it? Oh, uh, yeah. Anybody can take it. It's online. Um, it was called the Aspie quiz or Asperger quiz, um, something like that. I think ASPIE quiz. 
um, look for that, Google that, and that's that's definitely one of them. And it's it's very possibly the same one that I took. But there are, are a lot out there. And again, take it all with a grain of salt. It's it's not going to a doctor and uh, receive any expert diagnosis. One of the things that really struck me about that quiz and even getting the diagnosis, I, I imagine many people might feel that a diagnosis of Asperger's, you know, would be stigmatized, would be associated with shame in some way. And yet it sounds like in your life, actually it was an enormous relief to have a kind of non-blaming explanation for why your marriage was in so much difficulty at that time. And I'm curious, you know, like, and you stressed a moment ago, you know, that it's unintentional egocentricity. And what makes that so important to understand that it's unintentional? Well, um, certainly the diagnosis moment, just as it existed between my wife and myself, was a beautiful watershed moment. It gave me a lot of answers as to why a lot of things were challenges for me that other people, my peers, my friends, didn't seem to uh, struggle with. So that was very helpful, and it gave my wife, you know, a completely fresh perspective of me. She realized, okay, uh, not not all of this is his fault. That he's not being willfully aloof or anything like that. It's just, you know, um, how he developed as a person. So um, that being said, uh, the stigma that I'm referring to um, is something that you know people definitely feel all the time. You, you most people would not want to walk into a job interview or fill out an online dating profile and lead with, I have Asperger's syndrome, it's a mild form of autism, because um, from personal experience, I can say that a lot of people who don't know anything about me, who are just meeting me for the first time, I'm just another guy, I'm just Dave, um, you know, if I'm on the airplane talking to somebody, I can talk for two hours and they'll never know anything. Um, as soon as I then you know, go into what the book is about, and I explain why well, I had this Asperger's diagnosis. In, in that instant, I immediately changed from Dave, the guy in seat 14A, who was, uh, you know, just a fine conversational partner, to suddenly they're sitting next to Rain Man. And the energy in the conversation changes almost every time, where they're like, oh, I see. And all of a sudden, they're talking to an Asperger guy. They're not talking to, you know, me. Do they start talking and, to you as if you're not as smart, or do they start talking to you as if... Well, a couple times I've had people, <laughs> I've had people, it's hilarious, um, at book signings and things who will come up to me, and they'll say, like, almost really slowly, they'll say, it is really remarkable how well you're handling these this situation, given, you know, your social limitations, and I think social limitations, <laughs> we haven't even met yet. Like, <laughs> right. And it's hilarious, because I always think... I at least have the good graces to keep my mouth shut until I shake someone's hand, get to know them a little bit, and then I'll pass judgment all day long. But just to walk up to somebody cold <laughs> and right. start passing judgment, that's really something. Right. So, like, um, who's got the social problem here? Well, right. exactly. Right. But, in, you know, going back to what you were saying, the stigma, um, anytime you start talking about Asperger's, people see it as what are the limitations associated with that? They think what are the, the parameters that are limiting this person's life. And what they don't think about it is in terms of, hey, this person's got Asperger's. What are his real unique differences? What is he bringing to this equation that really only he can bring um, or, you know, one out of 68 people can bring? What would you say some of those are, Dave? Because I think for parents thinking about their kids, the more it can be framed in terms of like what the unique abilities of their child are, the much more hopeful it is. So what would you say some of those things are? Yeah, I mean, the sorts of things that are tremendous assets, really, are um, our, 
our ability to absorb information, to focus on what it is that we want to learn and immerse ourselves in what it is that we're interested in with a genuine childlike enthusiasm for that topic. Another thing is we see things kind of black and white and um, in a way that there's a trade-off. In a world that really demands that you are flexible and able to go with the flow, well, it's, it's, it's a little bit challenging to have a brain that sees things one way and sees that as the truth. But the good news is you have somebody that remains very steadfast and loyal to what they know and understand to be the truth. And so essentially you've got a very uh, loyal person, a person whose uh, moral compass is fixed in a very specific direction, and they won't deviate from that because the Asperger brain hates to break a rule willfully. <laughs> um, and I think the third thing is, again, the, the egocentricity. And my wife, Kristen, who is very much not Asperger's, very socially savvy, um, she observed this in me. And she said, I noticed that here I was just bending over backwards, trying to please everybody, trying to be the perfect mom, trying to be the perfect wife, trying to be the perfect friend, this, that, and the other thing. And it was, it was wearing me down and, and completely depleting me as a person. Well, here I see you. Dave, just doing what you do because you know that you're going to do what it is that's on your agenda, and um, and she's like it. It seemed selfish, and it was un, it was sometimes unbearable when I thought you were just choosing to be selfish. But now that I know that that's just how your brain works, she's like that's actually a beautiful thing that you're taking care of yourself and and taking care of your needs so that you're not outsourcing that to other people and saying, like, here, make me comfortable, do this for me. Um, the only area where that kind of gets a little friction-y is, like, for example, if my coworkers, um, every Tuesday, that's my habit, my Tuesday lunch is I go to this sushi place that's a few blocks away. Even the world, the worst weather, I'll walk down there and do it. But if my coworkers on a Tuesday say, hey, we're all going to lunch, I'll say yes, but the caveat is we have to go to my sushi place and um what ends up happening is we start walking there and one person pipes up and the next thing you know we're going to Chili's or some horrible place and I'm thinking what just happened I was on my way to sushi and everybody ruined it and it puts me in this horrible mood so um you know that's that's where you know needing things a certain way and then going after it and pursuing it isn't always feasible and um, as an ad- one of the things about becoming an adult, and certainly one of the things about becoming an adult with Asperger's, is that you learn have to learn how to go with the flow and balance, you know, um, the pursuit of what it is that you're interested in doing with, you know, the agendas and, and the needs and the interests of other people who are around you. It really intrigued me about um, how you said somebody with Asperger's will not, you know, intentionally break a rule. And it sounds like really clear guidelines, like schedule, clear rules, are very, very helpful. Um, you're right. Someone with Asperger's will have a very hard time breaking the rules, typically. And I'm painting kind of a brush here on everybody with Asperger's. It might be unfair, but for the most part, um, people with Asperger's are going to have a hard time breaking a rule that they personally buy into and believe in. The ironic thing is, if you have uh, somebody with Asperger's and you just assign them a rule that's arbitrary, um, or, or questionable, maybe as a kid you can get them to follow it, but as they start getting older, it's like, no, I'm not doing that. Yes. Dave, I want to ask you, I want to ask you something else, which is in your book you write about the development of, of empathy and your sort of stu- the way you took it on and the way you read all the articles and 
tried to figure out, did you have empathy? Did you not? You know, was it hardwired? Could you learn it? And, you know, empathy is sort of such an important part of social give and take and back and forth in a relationship. And I'm curious to ask you where you are now with empathy and whether you think that that's something that parents can help their kids learn. Yeah, I think that um, that whole empathy thing that I, I was writing about in the book at the time and trying to figure it out on my own as I was writing about it and had started a year or two even before I started writing about it in the book and everything, just trying to figure out, you know, wait a minute, if I've got Asperger's, everybody's telling me, you know, these research papers and things that that I don't have. And I was like, wait a minute, I, I know I feel stuff. Um, ultimately, I've come to the conclusion that um, I definitely am able to read people. Um, sometimes I get it wrong, but I think we all do. Um, I'm I'm able to understand generally, um, you know, the, the big stuff when I've offended somebody, when I've pleased somebody in, in some way, um, when I'm having a, a conversation with somebody. Now, um, what I understand about empathy, and everybody can write a different definition um, that suits their needs, but my understanding of empathy is that it's the ability to kind of determine, not even determine, but you just feel it, you just know deep down inside how somebody's doing. That's the first half. The second half of empathy involves, you know, invoking in you uh, the same emotion or the same feeling, the same emotional state that you're observing in somebody. It just kind of wells up inside you. So, your friend is very anxious or they're very excited. Well, you feel their anxiety. You feel their excitement um, on their behalf, and you're right there with them. That's my understanding is that's empathy. Now, with me, um, I don't always feel that on behalf of the other person. And In fact, I would say a lot of the times, not really, because I'm just kind of in my own head and I'm in my own feeling, and I can observe that somebody's sad, obviously, almost every time. <laughs> Um, I might not know that it's not appropriate to make a joke right now, you know, while they're sad. I might not get that part, <laughs> but, um, which gets me into kind of some funny trouble. I bet it but, does, um, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, honestly, uh, what I've learned to do is just kind of calculate and determine if I, if I don't feel where somebody's at, I can calculate and determine immediately based on my own experiences. Like, well, let's see, gee, um, you know, I've been betrayed by a friend before. So what this person is telling me, I can, I can conjure up my feeling of the last time I was betrayed and be like, yeah, man, I'm right there with you. I feel I, I can feel that now it's kind of manufactured, but I think that it counts just as much. Um, sure. If anything, is, if anything, I mean, it's actually a really loving act to, to intentionally extend yourself to choose to imagine it, even if it's not naturally welling up in you. Uh, I think that that counts for a lot. But what, what were you going to say? Yeah, no, I agree. And in, and in a lot of cases, it is. It's, it's you know, I, I respect and love this person enough, even if it's a complete stranger, to at least give them the due effort of being in a moment with them. Um, you know, it might not be happening organically. But I also I also want to make sure that I, I point out it might be happening organically. A lot of times I am. I'm you know my my wife Kristen she gets really great news. I'm like oh my gosh as well. I get really excited for her or my kids. I believe that I have tremendous empathy um, you know in in relation with with my kids when they're excited. I'm excited for them. It's usually nothing that materially benefits me. You know they did well in school. Um, it's not like a fatherly pride that I feel. I genuinely feel their excitement like go you like oh man to be in your shoes for a minute and feeling that good makes me feel good um so i think it's really important to point out to parents who might be listening that 
you know, don't don't read that and just swallow it as truth that, you know, Asperger's equals lack of empathy. It's just perhaps different empathy, but it is there. I want to ask about humor now because um, one of the things that I just loved about your book is how incredibly funny it is, and often in a very sort of self-deprecating way. I found myself, before I read your book, um, I think maybe making an assumption that humor is a kind of outgrowth of real social skill, like real capacity to kind of get inside someone else's mind or to have a real shared reality. And so I think maybe before reading you, I I assumed probably that there, it wouldn't be that funny. And um, I don't know, I guess I'm, I'm curious to ask you, how would you say that What's the social relationship that humor is an expression of that you're clearly very skilled at? I I love this question. You know, that's um, humor. You know, I haven't really studied what makes humor effective, um, but uh, I will say that I just the way that I process things, I find things funny. Um, so, uh, like right now, I'm watching a kid. I'm looking out the window in my house talking to you, and I'm watching a kid run across his front yard to go retrieve a ball. And the kid's like 10 years old. Happen to know this kid. He's in their neighborhood. He's a really good kid. And I just thought it'd be hilarious if he was innocently running after this ball and just smashed into that tree <laughs> that he's standing next to. But um, no, that's a horrible thing to say. But the humorist in me thinks it's hilarious. And I know that I can go and then relate that story to somebody. And they'll find it funny on a couple levels. They'll find it funny in the sense that a kid just innocently, playfully running after a ball and just the the world's cruel reality slaps him in the face when he smashes into three. That's funny. But also the fact that that's what's running through my mind is also going to work with somebody. So I think I get on some level what people are going to um, find funny, what they're going to laugh about. Um, it's also the slightly like outrageous, it. it's the slightly outrageous quality of it too. I mean, that's like so not supposed to be what we think about when we look at children. No. There's this kind of leap of like freedom, like, whoa, you know, like just even the kind of permission of even thinking thoughts like that. Oh, yeah, no, totally. And and that's the thing is my brain is doing that all day long. I also wonder if there's a way that, you know, you divided empathy into two two parts. You know, one is mm-hmm. um, being able to tell how someone's feeling and the other is having it kind of well up inside you in response. And maybe the fact that the second part is less strong in you kind of, allows you to have slightly more outrageous thoughts because it's not going to hurt you personally in the same way. And oh, if that is part of what enables you to be so funny. I, You know what? Maybe. I know that if you get uh, generally what I've found is that, you know, I do workshops for, for teens and stuff, and, and I've found if you get a bunch of teenage uh, Asperger boys and girls into a room and you you take strip away all the pretense of the neurotypical culture that they typically have to conform to, and you just let them wave their, uh, what I like to call our freak flags, you let the freak flags fly. The jokes they end up coming with, you know, they're sharing math puns and they're just howling with laughter, like, whoa, <laughs> you know? Yes. So one of the things that you do throughout your book is you, you list in italics all these little post-it notes, these kind of notes to self, um, because you take on this project of really studying, you know, bringing that incredible capacity for focus that you talked about to the idea of, like, learning social rules of relationship and some of them, I hope I'm not going to be offensive in saying this to you, but some of them are so obvious that they are hilarious <laughs> reading them. And I, can't, I couldn't tell, like, whether you were joking or whether you were totally serious. But I'm, were you, like, let me just read these. Um, don't change the radio station when she's singing along. When she's on the phone, don't force yourself into the conversation and don't sneak up on her. 
And he's like, I read these things. And part of me is like, are you serious? But I'm guessing you were serious. I was, it's two things. It's, it's uh, split right in half again. I was 100% serious. And I included those because I get that that's hilarious to people that I am serious about that. Like, uh, um, I had to write down, don't, something I had to work on is don't squeeze yourself into those phone conversations. Don't sneak up on her all the time. You know, um, see, those are obvious things, um, to most people, but to me, when there's a song on the radio that I can't stand, even if she's singing along, it's like, I, this, this is, is agitating me to the level that I'm, I'm starting to like freak out <laughs> You know, silently. So I'm just changing the channel. I can't handle this. And um, I don't even think for a second that, like, there's somebody else in the car really enjoying themselves. It's like, no, if this doesn't work for me and I change it. Well, you know, she gets mad enough about that and it kind of sticks with you. So I wrote it down. You know, don't, don't do that. Um, right. these, these are the sorts of things that I needed to work on in, in, in my relationship um, because I, I was really fixed on trying to be a better husband, the best husband that I could be. Um and uh, I knew that I needed kind of a rule book, like a guidebook. Um, you know, if you're going out into the into the wilderness for two weeks, you're going to read everything you can about, like, plants to avoid. You know, most people would say, like, oh, you shouldn't pick up a snake. But, you know, other people have to sit down with a guidebook and say, like, avoid these kinds of animals, these kinds of plants, you know. Right. Um, I think that was part of what was so touching, I'm I'm sure, to most of your readers, is that on the one hand, you come across in this book as forgive me for being so blunt, but like really clueless in certain ways. I think the unintentionality of it and the sincerity, your sincerity are so moving. Like halfway through the book, I'm thinking, how did she stay with him? How did she stay with him? (laughs) And then every other page, I'm thinking, of course she stayed with him. And it's like this ping pong game, reading your book all the way along, like, oh my God, how did you stand this? Oh my God, how beautiful is that? It was lovely. Well, I really appreciate that, and and I think your reading experience mirrors Kristen's experience just living with me. Like, I think on a daily basis, he's like, why am I doing this? And then, you know, I think she knows that I am working really hard at it, and I think that, you know, that, that devotion kind of speaks volumes about, uh, um, you know, how much I uh, this relationship means to me. And so um, it it was a lot of determined hard work, and I, I, I appreciate that. Thank you for saying that, and, and I... Um, the funny thing is, um, there is a downside to that. Uh, there are times when Kristen just wants to, you know, have a normal afternoon. You know, she doesn't want to sit there and review, um, the latest thing that I've been working on. She doesn't want to hash through something that I perceive to be, you know, a misalignment in our priorities. (laughs) She just wants to watch some brainless TV, um, so, uh, you know, I've, I've had to learn to just back off myself, too, and let myself have those flaws and know which ones to own and understand which ones I can do better and fix. <laughs> I know one of the struggles that parents have with kids on the spectrum is how to protect their child in school um, and how to how to support their child to have the best educational experience they can have. Um because sometimes their behavior can be challenging to their peers, and sometimes the kid's behavior can be challenging for their teacher. And I wondered if you could tell me a couple of stories about yourself in school as a boy and kind of what, if there's any kind of teaching moments that you've learned that can be helpful to parents or to teachers about how to support a child. Absolutely. Um, you know, I find my, I feel that I'm very lucky in the sense that I didn't, um, 
you know, not a lot of my behaviors were particularly challenging to um, to other students, to to teachers. I didn't, um, I wasn't picked on or bullied any more than any other, you know, scrawny kid who didn't play sports was. You know, I wasn't necessarily singled out by any means. But um, I think that one of the one of the key things that that might have been frustrating was the the executive function piece uh, that kind of is attendant with Asperger's a lot of times, or children with ADD, ADHD, that sort of thing. Um, and uh and of course executive function being the ability to um uh map out what it is you need to do to formulate your plan and then to execute to actually do the work so to plan the work and then to do the work well um I was very bright you know as a gifted kid twice exceptional gifted but um in terms of managing my workload and understanding figuring out the steps I would need to take to to do something and how much time it was going to take me to do it, then remembering to hand in that work when I was done with it was always a challenge. And one of the things that came along with that was keeping my environment clean and organized. Well, I was not an orderly, clean kid growing up. Now, then again, very few first graders are like that. Um, But I remember in in second grade, I think a very telling anecdote is that uh, I had a very difficult time keeping my desk clean and I had this this teacher that was just insistent that we do that and she sent home notes, you know, Dave's desk is deplorable, it's it's uh you know, it's a disaster and, and we got a real problem here. He he never keeps it organized, this, that and the other thing. Um we get to the end of the school year and my parents just kept sending notes back saying, Please thank you, continue to work with him <laughs> you know, we're not there. Um we understand it's frustrating. Please just, you know, do and do your best uh with, with him and, and uh I think encouraging her to, to maybe um, give me some guidance. But uh, what ultimately ended up happening was we get to the end of the school year, and um, uh, she had given me really no guidance or instruction. Pulled me, she never pulled me aside and said, "Gee, you know, your your brain clearly uh, is uh, is is not is not in this uh, system with me. So why don't we just come up with a system of organization that will work for you and we'll I'll hold you accountable to that. But it'll be a system that's kind of tailored for um, um, for where you're at and what you're what you're doing and um, and what I think you're capable of doing. And uh, that'll be our agreement. Well, she never said that. She basically let the whole year go by, kept sending home notes. At the end of the school year, she gave me a, uh, she presented me with an award in front of all the students, uh, the Messiest Desk Award. It had my name on it, calligraphy. It was like, <laughs> like laminated. <laughs> it was a big deal. And then she put a big condemned sticker on my desk and just laughed. All the kids laughed in school. And I, I was like, man, that's, you know, that's no good. <laughs> so, um, I'm, so she humiliated you. She tried to, she tried to humiliate you. Yeah. She saw me as somebody who was willfully being a punk and I was the furthest thing from anybody who would ever willfully be a punk. Um, it could have been a teaching moment, a teaching year, but that I didn't learn any organization skills. I'll put it that way from her. Um, I just learned that I was broken in this way and that other kids could keep their desk clean and I couldn't. Well, I didn't need that lesson. Like that's not a lesson that helps anybody. So, um, now what I will say is I saw plenty of other kids around me. When I look back on it, I'm like, Oh yeah, that, you know, that, that could easily have been Asperger's syndrome, um, who had very little awareness of their behaviors and the impact it was having on the kids around them. And then in return, how it was reflecting back on them personally, you know, they're being shunned, they're being made fun of. And, and, um, then the more upset they got about that, the more they lashed out and the more they lashed out, the more they became a target. It's, it's, it's a challenge of every parent, but especially somebody, you know, when, when your child is wired for, um, 
those such severe um, reactions to frustration and aggravation, you know, where where they're kind of a they're kind of a pot that that boils over very quickly. Um, yeah. It's difficult when that boiling over point occurs. You can't get that water back in the pot. All you can do is hopefully remove it from the flame, let the heat dissipate. It's a function of time and um, and have the tools to do it. Like I said, easier said than done. And I'm not an expert, um, so I'm just kind of armchair quarterbacking here. <laughs> but um, that's I think that's probably the the best help that I can offer parents. The best insights I can give. Dave, thank you so much. I read your book for the first time a few years ago and loved it. And in my work as a psychiatrist, I've recommended it to numerous of my patients and um, all of whom have loved it when they've read it. I want to thank you so much for what you've done, really. And I I think in helping people get what it might be like to to love someone with Asperger's or to be someone with Asperger's and um, it's really been a gift. So thank you so much. Thank you. My guest today is Dave Finch, the author of the book, The Journal of Best Practices, A Memoir of Marriage, Asperger's Syndrome, and One Man's Quest to Be a Better Husband. If you did not get a chance to listen to the whole interview and you'd like to, you'd like to email the link to a friend, please go to our website at safespaceradio.com. There you can subscribe to get a weekly email with the link to that week's show. You can also write us a comment, listen to any of our other shows, download a show for your smartphone and your morning commute, and you can download us also from iTunes or like us on Facebook. My thanks today to Gabe Graben for producing the show, to Jim Russell for being our consultant, and to Maurice Lennon for the intro music. Coming up next is Speak Freely.